You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Sometimes it's necessary for us to ask questions. For example, if you're lost in a, a particular place where you don't normally travel into, and you don't know anywhere, know, know where to go, very often it's good to stop and ask a local the directions. Or, or maybe you're a student at university or you're at school and you have to face these dreaded things known as examinations and you're asked questions. And the, the reason that you're asked a question is to see if you have any particular knowledge on the issue that is involved. There are other people and they are quite good at asking questions because they are just downright nosy. Uh, I don't know whether you fall into that category. Sometimes I must confess that I do. But one day we're told that Jesus was out with his disciples and he simply asked them a question. And the question was, who do people say that I am? And immediately he got the answer, well, there are some people think that you're John the Baptist. There are others who think you're Elijah or one of the prophets from the past. Because of all the wonderful things that Jesus was doing, it was obvious that people might come to those particular conclusions. But then he asked a much more pertinent question, not so much a general question about what do people think about me, but what do you think about me? And of course, we know the answer that Peter gave. He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I think there's no more important a question for us to ask today than the question, who is Jesus Christ? Because in the answer to that question, the eternal destiny of people hinges. And today there are all sorts of opinions expressed books written, articles printed, lectures given, and discussions held advocating who or what Jesus is. And many people complicate the answer to that relatively simple question by refusing to go to the final court of appeal where the answer to that question can be found. And of course, that is in the Bible. And in the Bible, we find that that is a source of information about all things spiritual that otherwise we would know absolutely nothing about. And the Bible is there in order to instruct us. Uh, in John's Gospel, we read that these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you might have life in his name. Here, John is speaking with clarity and conviction. He is not saying anything that is obscure or confusing, but that is perceptive and precise and persuasive. If you want to know anything about who Jesus is, well, the source is his word. And Luke's gospel clearly records and identifies what the angel said about Jesus at one point. It said he will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, uh, and, the, and the Lord will give him the throne of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will know no end. At the time of the birth of Jesus, you remember what the angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid, for today in the city of David there has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was John the Baptist who pointed him out as the Messiah. 
At his baptism, the Holy Spirit confirmed what the Father had already said, that this was his beloved Son. The crowd on the hillside were amazed when he fed 5,000 of them on one particular occasion. When he stilled the storm, the disciples could hardly believe what was going on around them. And even Satan acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God. And so with this diverse, if you want to call it, avalanche of individuals all coming to the same conclusion as to who Jesus was, I want us to consider this morning the fact that obviously Jesus was no ordinary man. And how do we come to the conclusion about that? And I want to suggest two reasons. First of all, there is the answer of human opinion, but more importantly, there is the answer of divine revelation. Human opinion very often asks the question, but comes to the wrong conclusion. And even today within the church, it would appear that there are those who are influenced more by human opinion than divine direction. For a moment, let's put ourselves into the shoes of someone who lived in the days of Jesus. Either, you either live in Galilee or Nazareth or Jerusalem or one of the other towns or villages that you read about in the Bible. And daily reports are circulating and you're a party to what is being said. You hear about Jesus raising the mother-in-law of Peter who had died you hear about that incident from the disciples of instilling the storm on the Lake of Galilee. You're possibly one of the crowd who happened to be on the hillside on that day when he fed the 5,000. And you've identified the fact that there are people who you've known who may have been healed or who reported of healings that Jesus had been involved in. And you've been amazed. And you're one of the people who says he speaks as one having authority and not as the scribes. And as he preaches, and as he says that he's coming to establish his kingdom, you get more and more excited about the whole thing. You're excited because you, like many other people, are under the yoke of imperial Rome, and you're under some sort of suppression, and you're paying taxes to Rome, and people like Zacchaeus is taking far more money from you than you should. And so you think, well, if this man's going to establish a kingdom and I identify myself with him, then one day things are going to be a lot easier. But then you discover that he's arrested. And your enthusiasm starts to evaporate a little bit. And then your enthusiasm turns to apathy. And your apathy to disappointment as things go on and as you see that Jesus is not turning out the way that you want him to be. And your disappointment then turns to criticism and your criticism turns to hostility and you may be one of the crowd in Jerusalem on the day when Pilate asked the question, what will I do with Jesus? And you say, crucify him. But let's step back for a moment or two from Galilee or Nazareth or Jerusalem into our own shoes. And let's ask the question, who is Jesus? There was a, a writer, I'm told he was a, an anonymous writer, and he wrote a piece entitled One Solitary Life. And this surely is a fairly uh, good uh, summary of who Jesus was and what he did. 
It says he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years he became an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or did he own a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually that accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. When he was only 33, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property that he owned on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed tomb through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. He is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as this one solitary life. Who do people say that Jesus is? Like Peter, can you say he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or like others, are you maybe somewhat hostile? Not only not to his personality, not to what he did and what he said and the example that he gave, but maybe hostile to the claim that he has within your life. Because, in other words, when Jesus comes to us and makes himself available and aware to us, he doesn't want us simply to accommodate our personal views about him. But what does the Bible say about him and what should be our response? A number of weeks ago I was reading an article in the Belfast Telegraph written by the religious correspondent who has been the religious correspondent of the Belfast Telegraph for about 50 years and has peddled his own particular views that are certainly not uh, in keeping with biblical Christianity. But he was saying that the, the, the church, because of who Jesus is and what he claims to be, is turning us back, uh, or people are turning their back on the church because of that. And I think it's true to say what someone else said, that the further that society drifts from the truth, the more hostile it becomes to those who teach it. And the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, we must remember, as public opinion may suggest, is that he was a good man, and that is true. That he was a good moral teacher, and that is true. That he loved everyone, and that is true. He loved the marginalized and the disadvantaged. And all that is true. But when it comes to the point that he was God's son who demands that we respond to his love and his goodness in order that we can experience eternal life, that's where hostility goes up. And that's where personal opinion and personal views, very often expressed in our world, take over.
But let's look for a moment at the other side of the coin. Not public opinion and what public opinion is today, but let's look at the answer to this question in respect of divine revelation. Who did Peter say he was? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He knew that he was more than a prophet. He knew that he was more than a moral teacher. He was, knew that he was more than someone who came to give a good example. Peter knew that Jesus was God's Son coming into the world for a particular purpose. And we, we need to thank God for that. And we need to thank God too that we can, through the operation of his Spirit in each of our lives, come to a similar conclusion where we set aside personal opinion. Earlier on, I said that, you know, so often people uh, want to ask questions about spiritual things. Uh, and what do they say? How do they answer some of the questions that they or you might have? They say, well, my opinion is, is this. And somebody else says, my opinion is, is this. And the question is, whose opinion is right? Well, of course, we, we must come to the, to the opinion of divine revelation in the Bible. And what does it mean when the Bible tells us that we are to trust Jesus Christ into our lives as our Savior? What does that really mean? What does, the, the, as it were, divine revelation encourage us to respond to? In, in preparation for this sermon, I, I thought about... Um, an illustration I'd heard many, many years ago and I'd completely forgotten about it. And I went to my computer the, the other day to see if they had anything to say about this uh, particular um, illustration. It was a about a man call called Charles Baldwin. Blundin. He was a tightrope walker. And he lived, oh, in the 1800s. But he decided that he did all these marvelous stunts and feats, and people came from all over to see him uh, perform as he did. And he decided that he was going to get a tightrope, and he was going to put it at one side of the Niagara Falls, and he was going to take it over to the other side, uh, a distance of 1,100 feet, over a chasm of 170 feet below. And he was going to walk across this. And of course, the, the day came when this was happening and, and hundreds of people came to, to see this great feat and he, he made his way across and then he went back again and people thought this was marvelous. And then sometime later he decided he would do something a wee bit more uh, outstanding and dramatic and he actually carried somebody on his back, his manager, across uh, and, and back again. And then on another occasion he thought, what, what will I do? And he, he got himself wrapped up in some sort of blanket and he was nearly blindfolded and he went across blindfolded and then one day he did it again and he wheeled a wheelbarrow across in front of him and when he got to the other side he said to the crowd how many of you think that I could wheel that wheelbarrow back with one of you in it and of course they all said yes and there was great, great excitement about it and then he said well would somebody get into it but nobody got into it. They had faith that he could do it, but they didn't have the trust to get into the wheelbarrow. 
And you know, there are many people like that. We have faith in who Jesus Christ is. That he was no ordinary man, that he came into the world, that he died on the cross. But the problem is, they believe all that through divine revelation and through reading the Word of God. But they don't have the trust to put that faith into practice and, as it were, to get into the barrow or to put our trust in Jesus Christ to take us to the other side. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, have I exercised saving faith that leads to a trust, trusting Jesus Christ for my eternal security in the future? And there are some people who have done that, but there are other people who haven't done it. And sometimes the reason that people don't do it is because of what we read in the second part of our reading. Where in the first part, the question was asked, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But as you go on, then it comes to the point where the cost of discipleship comes before us. And there are many people who are prepared to say, yes, it's good, it would be lovely to be a Christian, but it's hard to be a disciple. There was a man called Chris Wright, uh, and he has written a book, God's Mission in the World. And this is what he says. He said, I have an enormous and sincere admiration and great concern for all you Christians who do every day engage in the workplaces of the world. You set forth every morning into the public square that is both the world of God's creation and the world of Satan's usurped and temporary dominion as well as the world of your participation in God's mission. You are the Daniels of the present world, or at least you should be. You are the disciples of whom Jesus said, you're in the world, but not of the world. You live and work in the world's public square, but your ultimate goal and values in life are from another, another source, the kingdom of God. You are the salt and light of the world. And is it not true to say that there are many people, and yes, they know that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, that he is the Son of God, that he did die on the cross for our sins. But the reason that they don't fully put their trust in him is because of the cost of discipleship. Or, or there are some people at times, and I hadn't intended to tell this story about a wee man that I knew in my first congregation. And uh, he went into hospital, and uh, I, I visited him in, in the hospital, and, and he was somewhat disturbed in the morning. I visited him, and I said, what's wrong with you? And he said, oh, the guy that was in the bed opposite me died very suddenly last night, and it put shockwaves, as it were, around the ward. And then he turned to me, and he said, I hope he had settled his account. And I knew this wee man quite well, and he'd never set his foot across the doorstep of the church. And I thought, what a glorious opportunity that has been presented to me just now. And I looked at him and I said, William, have you settled your account? And I got the shock of my lifetime 
And he said, yes, I have. I said, when did that happen? Well, he said, that happened 35 years ago in a wee mission hall. And at the end of the service, I put up my hand. I said, William, tell me this. Many times have you darkened the door of a church building in those 35 years outside when you've attended a funeral? None. I said, I'm not quite sure that you have settled your account. You have made some sort of an outward response that has made no inward change in your life. And you haven't, as it were, denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed Jesus Christ. And in the context of what we've been saying in the bed across the ward, which is now empty, should you not be thinking about things in a more serious and a more important way? As far as he was concerned, yes, he had settled his account. But I doubt very much had he really, because there was no evidence of the fact that that happened. And as we gather in church this morning, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence given to the court to convict you of being a Christian? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Have you put your trust in him? Is he your savior? And is your trust sufficiently strong? Like the boys who didn't get into the barrow to go across the Niagara Falls. Is your trust such that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ? You are walking with him and that you're going through whatever it takes in order to have that assurance that you are one of his children. Let us pray. Thank you.